Last week we started on a, a series on biblical leadership and we talked about the fact that servant leaders need to be called by God. Today we're going to talk about character, but I want to remind you of this quote from um, uh, East Step Road Cup and Johnson. Uh, As the leadership goes, so goes the congregation. It is absolutely vital, one, that we pick biblical leadership, and two, that we support them after we pick them. So let's be choosy, let's be serious about it, okay? And then let's be willing to get behind them and to help them as they lead. Pray with me if you would. Father God, as we go into talking about the character of the called this morning, as we open your word, as we think about some some things that are important, that are relevant, as we think about the kind of men that should be our recognized leadership, both elders and deacons. May we, Father, do this with an open mind, with a soft heart, and a willingness to listen to what your Spirit has to say to us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Good. He must be married. He must be without pride. He must be temperate. And he must combine prudence of mind with excellence of outward behavior. He must be prudent, self-controlled, sober, frugal, endearing in Toil, intelligent, without love of money, neither young nor old, if possible the father of a family, able to speak competently, and of good reputation. Good descriptions of elders, don't you think? Yeah. By the way, in your bulletin, I gave you a piece of paper that you probably looked at and went, what in the world does this say? In fact, I had somebody first thing this morning who got their bulletin and looked at it and said, I don't understand what these letters mean. And I understand that. What you have there is you have a matrix of where Paul is talking to Timothy and to Titus and what Peter says in 1 Peter about biblical leadership. What I did there is those first grouping of letters is a transliteration of the Greek into English characters, okay? I don't expect you to learn that. I don't expect you to know what it says because I have the English translation right there beside it. The main reason why I did that is to point out that Paul writing to Timothy, Paul writing to Titus at virtually the exact same time, and Peter all use different words. In other words, Paul didn't tell Titus and Timothy the same thing, and Peter said something even completely different than Paul. When you look at the original wording. Now, 
the columns show which verses contain the exact words pertaining to both elders and deacons. And I don't expect you to look that over right now and to really get really in deep with it, in depth with it. But what I do want is I want you to have it available so that you can think about it in light of what we are talking about today because it's important. Now, lots of times we get to use the word qualification when it comes to uh, talking about elders and deacons, and honestly, I don't think that's the best word. I think the better word is characteristic, and I'll tell you why. First, if you want to think about a qualification, one thing that should come to mind is this right here. When you get a driver's license, you have to what? You have to qualify for it. There are several different things. You have to be of a specific age before you can get a license. You have to go through a class. You have to go through different kinds of skill tests. You have to pass an eye test. And if you can't pass that eye test with the minimum requirement, you have not fit the qualification and you do not get a driver's license because qualifications are absolutes. Absolutes do not change. But there's a problem. And if you look on that sheet, you will see it. If Paul in 1 Timothy 3 was trying to make an absolute qualification, why did he use different words in writing between Timothy and Titus? At virtually the same time. Why did he not use the same words? And also, why do we not even talk about what Peter says? When Peter's the one that Jesus appointed to get the church started. And why does Peter not say what Paul said to either Timothy or Titus? Why are his words completely different? The only real logical conclusion is that they were never meant to be absolutes. Now I know you haven't stopped, you haven't looked at it. But we need to be honest about what the Bible does say and what it does not say. Yes? Okay. If qualification is what Paul meant, Why didn't he say that? There are five perfectly good words in Greek that get translated in the scriptures as qualified or qualification. All five of them are in the New Testament. Paul didn't use any of those words. Oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. He did. In 2 Corinthians and in 2 Timothy... And in Ephesians, he did not use them in 1 Timothy or in Titus. So we know Paul had those words available to him, yet he did not use them. You ever stop to think about that? If he wanted to make it a qualification, why didn't he say that? Characteristic lists were very common back in 
that first century. In fact, you remember these? I read these right as we got started, both of these. These were part of character lists that were common of the day at the time. And gosh, they sound an awful lot like an elder, like somebody you would respect. Well, the first one here is actually by Diogenes Laertes. And it's his description of the ideal Stoic philosopher, clearly not Christian. And if you want to go one step further, this one is by Onasander, who was giving a list of traits for the ideal Roman general. So both of these are pagan. And yet they sound so much like what what Paul said. How is that possible? Actually, I think it's simple, really, when you stop to think that the one who stood up at the Aragopagus in Athens and said, Men of Athens, as I went around your city, I see that you are a great religious people. For I saw all of the idols that you have everywhere. In fact, I saw this one altar that you put up to the unknown God. That that you worship in ignorance. Let me tell you who that God is. Paul, also the one who said in 1 Corinthians 9.22, I have become all things to all men so that by all means I might save how many? Some. You're familiar with this, right? What's he say? I don't follow tradition, I follow Christ. Right? And I'm going to forfeit what is traditional in order to bring people to God. Yes? I'm going to use every means possible in order to do that. You see, I think that guy, that guy is using a culturally relevant device to talk about the level of maturity that's needed for recognized servant leadership. That also explains the variation between the two letters, between the letter uh, of 1 Timothy going to Timothy, who's in Ephesus, having to deal with heresy among the leadership there, and Titus, who's on the island of Crete, who's actually going to plant a new church, a new congregation. You see... It explains why these things were never meant to be a qualification or a checkoff list, but a character trait for an ideal candidate. Because you see, the type of leadership that was needed in Ephesus and what was needed in those men was different than what was needed on the island of Crete at the time Paul was writing this. Now you'll note As you read through there, you're going to say, yeah, Eric, but he says similar things. They are similar. They're not the same. Okay? Anderson, Lynn Anderson, when he writes in his sheet book, he he 
he says this. He says that it's just different kinds of leadership that are needed. And Peter, Peter is writing in a totally different, totally different circumstance. Jim Estep from Lincoln Christian Seminary. He says, as you look at these three lists, the irreducible factor in each of these lists of character traits is that your servant leaders need to be blameless. Servant leaders need to be blameless before God in their life, in their actions, their heart, their motivations must all be in line with Christ's teaching. It is not a call to the perfect, but it is a call to the forgiven who are serving God. Servant leadership must know and practice lordship and are already showing that Christ is Lord of their life long before being considered for leadership. Servant leaders need to be blameless before others. How do you know if that's really the case? Well, you have to have a vetting process. You have to have something in place that examines that individual's life. And vetting takes time. It takes attention, it takes prayer, it takes discernment. One part of that vetting process is your personal experience with that individual. How long have you known them? Where have you seen them be blameless when they could have given in? Oh, and one very big overlooked aspect when people want to look at 1 Timothy and say it's a qualification Have you ever met anybody from their work? Because it says they have a great reputation with outsiders. You ever talk to their boss? You ever talk to their secretary? You ever talk to their co-workers? Have you interviewed their neighbors? Do they have the kind of life where they are respected at work? Does he live a crucified life Monday through Friday? Servant leaders must be blameless before family. What's his character in his home? After all, his family is the one who should know him the best. How do you know? Well, do you watch his children? Do they respect his authority? How does his children describe him? How does his wife describe him? By the way, this is another overlooked aspect, is is the character of the spouse. Over in Paul, 1 Timothy 3.11, he says that the spouse has to be worthy of respect and even-tempered and trustworthy, not a malicious talker. Do you ever consider his wife's actions before you put someone forward for recognized leadership? 
Because regardless of how much you respect the man, if his wife engages in gossip or in slander or stirs up division and cannot maintain a trust, that man should not be considered for recognized servant leadership. How does he handle his finances? That could very well be the real implication behind that phrase that he manages his own family, his own household well. Do you remember what Jesus said? You be faithful in little things and then I will put you in charge of greater things. Yes? Friends, if a potential servant leadership does not handle his own responsibilities well at home, Can we expect there'll be any different in handling the affairs of God? 1 Timothy 3, 2, we get this. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife. Now, you're familiar with this whole section, but I want to stop at that phrase. Um, The but, by the way, is not in there. That's actually added to try to give a clarification by those who are translating the NIV and what they're really doing is inserting their theological thought. Um, Because the phrase there, and this is probably the most misunderstood phrase of this whole section when we're talking about um, the character of someone that comes into recognized leadership. The actual phrase, you've probably heard it yourself, is one woman man. That's the actual phrase that's there. One woman man. And it really points to character. One of my favorite Greek teachers of all of my life, who I happened to spend the first 50 plus years of my life with him, my dad, He would say what this is pointing to is what we would say in English, a one-woman kind of man. In other words, it's pointing to a character trait. He is the kind of a man that is faithful to one woman. Okay? Now, this has been interpreted by good, God-fearing Christians in at least five different ways. And I bet you by the time I go through these, I'm probably going to hit what you have heard at least once, maybe twice, maybe three times as to how that really comes into play. But the thing is, if it's an absolute, it can't be all five. It can only be one. Historically, this has been interpreted as he must be married, which means it excludes anyone who is single, which means a man who happens to be a recognized, in recognized leadership and his wife dies and now he is not married, he has to step down. And there are some organizations, some churches that hold to that. There's a problem with this when you really stop to think about it because it would exclude the individual who wrote it. You may remember that Paul was single. Why? 
to give all of his time and effort to the glory of God. Yes? Okay. Slight variation. He must be married with children. Oh, that's a plural. That means he's got to have more than one child, which means anybody who is married and has a child but doesn't have two children can't be in. Anderson points out, you know, if you stop to think about it, in English, there are times that we point to children in plural, but also in the single. If I were to say, okay, children, stand up and clap your hands for your mothers and your fathers, you know that even those that are single, that don't have a brother or sister, would still stand up? We do that in English. But this would also exclude the barren and the one family child. It's also been interpreted as could only be married one time, which would exclude a widower who got remarried. There's a problem with that. It goes against Hebrew tradition. There is no known exclusion that exists under in the Hebraic society of a man whose wife has died that he can't remarry. It goes against the culture of the day and the culture of the people of God. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 9 actually encourages remarriage in order to avoid sin. And Jesus does not condemn remarriage. Now I say that, some of y'all immediately, your mind jumped to Matthew 19, okay? He does condemn divorce. But if you're reading that in context, he does condemn the practice of divorcing one and other in order to marry another. He condemns divorcing one in order to marry another one. Now you think about that. You think about situations you know about where somebody divorces their spouse in order to marry somebody else. In most of those cases, you probably will know or at least suspect that sin is already likely happening. Yes? There's nowhere else in Scripture where remarriage is ever put in a negative light. Well, here's this one, the fourth one. Must be married only one, time, only one at a time. Okay, wife dies, remarries. It's only one at a time. By the way, that's the historical position of Alexander Campbell. That's the historical position of the Stone Campbell movement, of the group of churches that we are in. In fact, that's probably where the writers of the NIV are when they put that word but in there. Husband of but one wife. But there's a problem with that. Because what he's talking about is not a polygamist, right? Just put it right out there, not a polygamist. But there's a problem with that. Polygamy was outlawed under Roman rule. And had been for decades. It wasn't even an issue in Paul's time. Now, immorality 
truly was still an issue, but not polygamy. Obviously, that's not God's favored position, having more than one wife. But don't forget, if this is really, truly the way this should be uh, translated, this is the way Paul meant, that would have to mean we would exclude Father Abraham and Jacob and David and Solomon from any kind of spiritual leadership. Most likely, as far as Alexander Campbell goes, our movement goes, is we're talking about a cultural interpretation. In fact, I would tell you that virtually every one of these comes from a cultural interpretation. Think about it. Back in the 1800s, as we were moving westward to the wilds of Kentucky and Indiana, Illinois, who else was moving westward in America at that time? Mormons. What were the Mormons known for? Polygamy. They deny that now, but I mean, it's obvious in history, right? I tell you what Campbell did. Campbell actually went against his own historical critical thinking, and he went back to the Old Testament, and he saw David and Abraham and Solomon and all of those guys that had more than one wife, and he saw how tragic their lives were. And so he said, he's talking about polygamy, because we don't want to get involved in that as that's coming out on the frontier with us, that that is what Paul's talking about instead of looking at the cultural situation of Paul's day. Now, honestly, I think Paul is saying something that is far above all of these. And we'll get to that in a minute. The fifth way this gets translated, and again, it's a cultural interpretation, and no doubt you've heard it, is that that man cannot be divorced. I get it. I understand that. But I have to ask you again, if that is what Paul meant, why didn't he just say that? For Paul's not one to mince words, is he? He's usually pretty clear about what he means. There are perfectly good words in Greek for divorce. In fact, there's two of them. And Jesus uses both of them in Matthew 19. I submit to you, they were readily available to Paul if that's what he meant. But I want to tell you that even though divorce over the last 70, 80 years has been one of the greatest threats to the family and then to our religious outlook and so to the church, It's been one of the greatest threats. It results in the breakdown of family. It results in the breakdown of society. Our cultural situation is vastly different than Paul in his day. Because you see, in Paul's day, the vast, the overwhelming majority of divorces were filed by men. In fact, 
a woman could almost never be able to divorce her husband. There's only three small ways that that could happen. He, he raped a virgin. He changed his um, trade to something that was disgusting, that would make her unclean and unable to go to temple, okay? Or, or he got a disease like leprosy. And so he was going to be ousted from society. She did not have to be ousted, okay? But then she couldn't file the divorce. She still had to convince a man, a priest, to file for her. It was virtually impossible for a woman to divorce her husband. And yet, he could do that on a whim. If she spun in the street, if she was a brawling woman, which means she spoke to her husband loud enough that somebody outside the room could hear her, If she burnt his food. Or if he just happened to find someone else that was prettier than her. By the way, this is in, this is in the Midrash. This is in the writings of the Jews. In fact, Shemil and Halil, Shemai and Halil two rabbis of the first century actually thought about this. And it's in their writings and how, and how that was determined. Let me ask you a question. Right, wrong, or indifferent? Who files the overwhelming majority of divorces in our country today? Who is it? It's women. You didn't even have to know the statistics, did you? 70%. Right at 70% today. Divorces are filed by women. Now, I'm not saying they're wrong, okay? Right, wrong, or indifferent. Even if it's no fault, the fact still remains that Paul would have never, ever thought that a man could be the victim of divorce. And yet, in our society today, if a wife just determines that she doesn't want to be married anymore even if there's no sin or any other thing she just decides she doesn't want to be married she'll walk away and there's absolutely nothing that man can do about it you've seen that happen now I'm not saying everybody gets a pass on whether or not they've been divorced. But I am saying you need to look at that situation individually. Okay? You following me? Okay. So these are the five ways that this has been historically translated. One woman, man. How does that work out? And it can't be all of them. If it's a qualification, it has to be one. Because the other four are wrong. And which one is it? I would submit to you that we're lowering the bar if we try to pick one of these. That what Paul is actually calling us to is a higher standard. Lynn Anderson actually puts this very eloquently in his book, They Smell Like Sheep. 
Lynn Anderson says that he must be the kind of man who keeps covenant. Because you see, marriage is not a contract, it's a covenant. The two most important covenants that we make is our covenant with God through Jesus Christ and the covenant with our spouse. It is the highest, most intimate covenant that a man makes. It involves a spiritual union with another person and it involves fidelity to himself. Because what is it all the way back to Genesis that we've always understood when a, when a man leaves his, his uh, parents, woman leaves her parents and the two cleave together, they become what? It involves fidelity to himself. And friends, I know we treat marriage lightly in this country. But the people of God need to treat it as covenant. It is second only to our covenant with God. And remember, God is a covenant-keeping God. He never breaks covenant. Amen? Amen. So consider this. If a man and a wife honor their marriage vows, there will be no infidelity. There will be no polygamy. There will be no divorce. Children will grow up in a home where love is modeled and given to them. The wife will honor her husband and the husband will be honorable. The husband will give his life for his bride as Christ gave his life for the church and she will feel cherished under his protection. His children will grow to respect their parents for they kept the family strong. And not only that, but the children benefited from that strong family. Now, i got to be careful here because I'm probably getting into a whole different sermon series. But here's the thing. And it comes down to this. Servant leaders must be blameless before self. And that's perhaps the hardest of them all. For we all know our own shortcomings. We alone know whether our thoughts are pure and which temptations we entertain. And friends, those that we put into recognized servant leadership have to have the same standards they profess in front of people in those private moments when only God is watching. And it's a tall order. One of the main reasons for a plurality of elders for there to be more than one is because, if we're honest, no one elder possesses blamelessness perfectly all the time. Anybody in here blameless all the time? I'm closing my eyes. I don't even want to look. 
You don't see my hand going up either. Yet a plurality of elders can attain a blamelessness. It's more easily realized when they complement and they complete and they correct and they encourage each other through a mutual accountability. James, in his letter in chapter 3, verse 1, says that those who presume to teach are going to be judged more strictly. Now realize that's, that's not an endorsement of that practice. It's just a simple statement of reality. Our recognized leadership must be blameless because the world is watching. Father God, we thank you for the instruction that comes from your word. And we thank you, Father, for even those moments when we realize that we are not blameless. We thank you, Father, that you give grace and that you also give like-minded people that help us to stay blameless. We thank you, Father, for your Son and for his death on the cross. For we know that it is only in the blood of the Christ that we can ever have the hope of the life to come. And we thank you, Father, that through the blood of the Christ, you view us as holy in your sight and acquitted of sin. And we thank you, Father, that the blood of the cross is still changing lives today. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray.